May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I thought I might start today's sermon with a little bit of a confession. There's nothing scandalous or serious. Honestly, it's more embarrassing than anything. You see, if you were to ask my mother what kind of kid I was, she would probably think about it for a minute, look off in the distance, fidget, and then as politely as she could, she would tell you that I was scattered. You see, when I was a kid, I was pretty bad at most things that required discipline. Homework, chores, anything like that was boring, was pointless, painful even. I wanted to do pretty much anything else. I loved to go on really long bike rides for hours, riding around the neighborhood, exploring. I would rather play video games, spend time with my friends. I would rather lay on the floor and stare at the ceiling than do my homework. That's the kind of kid I was. But something strange happened to me in early adulthood. I don't know exactly when, but things started to make sense. I started to get it. The frustration that I had felt about homework and the I don't want to do it feeling Somewhere along the way, it was replaced by a love of learning. And by the time I got to graduate school, for the third time, <laughs> I, was, I was hooked, like learning new things and being able to have conversations with people about interesting topics is worth the pain of making yourself sit and study. I still, to this day, can't say like, I love cleaning. But I do love when the house is clean and organized and everything is put away and you just sit there and look around and take a deep breath and you feel good about it. So when I became a parent, I recognized in my own children the same tendency that I had as a child to not want to do homework and chores and I had a brilliant idea. I said, the problem is that no one has explained to the children the joy that comes from completing a difficult or tedious task. So I will just explain to them why we do this stuff, and I'll help them fast forward their thinking, and everything will be fine. So I can tell you today with certainty that my hypothesis was wrong, my experiment failed, and every day we have conversations about homework and chores at my house. This is all in good fun, of course, but the truth is that you probably were not shocked to hear any of my confession. And in fact, you probably identified with parts of it because it follows a familiar script, something we all know. Psychologists would call this a schema. It's a mental map that we all carry for how we are supposed to live our lives. Cultural critics might call this a narrative, something that has been imposed on us by society, a way to order our lives to fit the conventions 
of what we are expected to do. And regardless of where you come from, the script goes like this. Kids aren't born inherently responsible. Responsibility is not innate to humanity. So kids need rules and structure. They need someone to explain things to them and teach them. But eventually they're supposed to grow out of it. And then they finish school and they start a career and they contribute to society and the cycle starts all over again with the next generation. On and on and on. We know the script for life, but what about the script for our spiritual lives? Brian McLaren, in his book Finding Faith, takes this basic developmental model and applies it to a life of faith. And I will tell you that Brian McLaren was not the first person to do this. Developmental models have been around in psychology for a long time, and they were adopted to understanding a life of faith 60, 70 years ago. But his four steps are particularly useful, and here they are. According to McLaren, we start out in what he calls simplicity. This is basically a childlike faith. We hear the stories as they're told to us, we receive them and believe them as presented, and we basically do what we are told to do, to be good Christians and good people. Simplicity gives way eventually to complexity. Complexity happens when we start figuring things out. We start saying, oh, I understand the reason why I'm supposed to do this. But the interesting thing is that we tend to compartmentalize our faith at this stage. So faith exists in its own little box, its own little bubble, and it's here. And over here we might have what we believe in, what we've been taught sort of our intellectual commitments. And over here, we might have our political commitments. And somewhere over here, we might have what we do for a living. And somewhere over here, we might have family. And so faith exists as one little bubble of who we are alongside all of these other bubbles. And we are very good at compartmentalizing. For some, the complexity, this compartmentalized stage, gives way to perplexity. And this I like to call the angry teenager phase of faith development because you start asking questions. Everything starts looking a little fuzzy. Everything becomes relative. You might even start isolating yourself from the faith community you've known and hanging out with other people who are asking hard questions and saying, I'm not so sure about this faith stuff. But once you move out of that phase, you get into the last phase, according to McLaren, which is the humility phase, which involves integration and interdependence. All of these little boxes, all of these little bubbles start dissolving. Everything starts coming together. And your life, all of your life, becomes a life of faith. And you start living the best life you can. So if you don't see the parallels between sort of a early childhood, adolescent development progression, and how we're supposed to develop as Christians, uh, I, I don't know what else could explain it to you. For me, it's a very similar path. But most of us don't know about spiritual development because we don't have spaces to talk about this. And because we don't create the space to talk about what we're going through honestly as Christians, we don't have these scripts for our life 
of faith. For a lot of us, this creates confusion. And a lot of people actually argue that because we're not good at talking about faith problems and faith questions the same way we are at talking about normal human development problems and questions, most of us get stuck in stage two. And our faith exists as a bubble. It exists in a little box. It's something that we might do on Sundays or maybe a Bible study here and there, but we don't see the connection between our faith life and every other part of our lives. And Jesus gives us a way to talk about this in the confrontation that we read today between Jesus and the local priest, the teacher at the synagogue. Because Jesus shows up on the Sabbath at a synagogue to teach, and this was totally normal. This fits the script because prophets had done this for centuries. They're traveling around. They just show up in the local congregation. They break open the scriptures. They debate with the teachers, and everybody learns a good lesson. But on this particular Sabbath, there was a woman in the crowd who caught Jesus' attention because she was bent over, unable to stand up straight. And this is the moment when Jesus throws the script out the window. He walks over to the woman, lays his hand on her, and says, Be well. She is cured instantly, and this is not normal. And the teacher, the local priest, rebukes Jesus for this action, saying there are six days that people can come here and ask for prayers, but not on the Sabbath. We are not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And the teacher was right, because if you go back to Exodus 35, you learn that doing anything on the Sabbath, including lighting a fire to heat your home, was a capital crime worthy of execution. The teacher is not being rude to Jesus. He is pointing out that Jesus has broken a very basic tenet of Judaism in a very public way. But for Jesus, there is no conflict here because Jesus is thinking about life differently. Jesus sees all of life as integrated, as connected. What he does on the Sabbath is not different from his mission to offer hope and healing to people who need it. Jesus understands that the rules are not the goal in and of themselves, that the goal is the full flourishing of all people within the life of God. So I wonder today how many of us still carry the same script that the teacher of the law the local priest in the synagogue had that day. Because we are taught from a young age that the goal of a life of faith is to follow the rules, to say our prayers, to be a good person, to read the Bible a certain amount of time every day. Because we are inherently rule followers, because we are raised to follow the rules by our parents. We somehow internalize this idea that if we just do things right, we will earn God's favor and avoid punishment. And we stay there. But any parent will tell you that, yes, it's fine to have rules and rewards and punishments for kids, but that's not where you live as an adult. 
The goal is for you to internalize these things, to understand them, to live into them, to find the enjoyment, the fulfillment in these activities. This is maturity. But when it comes to a life of faith, we, we sometimes think it's bad to ask hard questions, to struggle or to doubt or to say, I don't get this, God. What is going on? And so we keep our hard questions to ourselves, and we keep our faith in a box. We wonder sometimes when and where and how we will put more things in that box. And we might join a Bible study or we might commit to feed the homeless at a soup kitchen for a while. But we look around at our other boxes and we worry that the stuff that's in there is keeping us from being the kind of person God wants us to be. We say things like, once I get my career figured out, then I'll get serious about church. Once I fix this problem with my family, then I'll really plug into Bible study. Our other boxes keep us from seeing that that's not what God intends for us. Faith is not meant to be kept in a box. It is meant to be the totality of our life. Everything we do, whether you're a professor or a doctor or a priest or a teacher, it doesn't matter to God because all of your life is a life of faith. So the answer is not to disqualify ourselves from the journey before we even start. The answer is to return to discipleship, to continue to grow in our faith, to adopt those disciplines of Yes, prayer and service and Bible study and do those things in community, in a worshiping community so that we continue to grow because our goal is not to be perfect people. It's not to follow all of the rules. It's not to always have the right answers, but it is to see those compartments dissolve and to realize that God's greatest pleasure as the parent of all of us is to see us become who we were meant to be, to flourish and to mature and to grow. I would be remiss if I did not mention to you here that we are just a couple weeks away from starting our full cycle of everything once again. The summer break is ending, and we're going to have opportunities for you to participate in Bible studies, to teach Sunday school classes, to join the altar guild, to be a communion minister. And if you're looking for that opportunity, to get off the sidelines and to see what a life of faith means, to grow in your faith and mature as a Christian, I encourage you to consider investigating one of those opportunities of joining one of those ministries because our call is not to blindly follow the rules. It's not to keep our faith in a box. It's not to earn God's favor because, friends, it's not even possible to earn God's favor. You are today a beloved child of God, and nothing can change that. Our call is to carry on Christ's mission in the world, to do those things we hear in Isaiah 58, to remove the yoke, to offer food to the hungry, to let our lights shine in the darkness, to repair the breach, to restore the streets. And when we do that, we will find delight and experience God's delight in us. Amen.